hear from that one gal when we did the shout out? No, not yet. You could have stuck in the history of Mother's Day. I could have stuck in the history of Mother's Day, what was it being Mother's Day, but I didn't. So, uh, in part because as we're going through, we, we, we've gotten to the Civil War, and I went round and round with this. Uh, part of me said, uh, it, it, it's only it's only 10, I mean, it is important for some, some context of things with church history, but it... it I didn't want to talk about the Civil War and all the political things and all the and all the battles and stuff because it's not that's not church history and I'm trying to keep everything church history focused. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I spent time two weeks on, on the Revolutionary War and I did try to talk about some church history things in that. But I'm like, you know, we just really need to understand the Revolutionary War because most people don't really. And uh, so I kept trying to write these notes in a way that that kind of said, well, Civil War is important, but let's let's focus on. A, and it just felt really weird to keep typing that. Every time I tried to do this, it's like, and then there was a civil war. Anyway, um, and, and, and since we have civil war reenactors in our church, it just seemed like a disservice to do that. So, for two weeks, we're going to talk about the civil war, and we're going to we're going to talk about some church history things as well. But it's just not going to be as church history e as most church history class. Well, all right. Anyway. Talk about we ended last time talking about John Brown. Um, John Brown leads a raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859. John Brown, bit of a kook, but he's a very dedicated kook, bit of a kook. Um, if you remember, he had been one of the major players during the Bleeding Kansas incident. Remember when we talked about that a couple weeks ago? He was the one that was leading the the northern forces at, in, in Bleeding Kansas. But he actually started off studying to be a minister because. A lot of the people that we talk about in our church history class, even the people that were extremely secular, a lot of them start off studying to be ministers. There's just a lot of a lot of that going around. And if you remember, there's this huge, um, this 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 huge revival going on. It's actually been kicking in since about the 1830s or early 1840s, but it's kicking in majorly in the in the 1850s. Remember, it's it just especially in in the cities, so New York, Philadelphia, Washington. People are coming to know the Lord at a, at a rate of 50,000 people a week in the United States are coming to know the Lord and dedicating themselves to Christ. Huge move of the Holy Spirit in the 1850s. Um, he was studying to be a, a minister, but after there was, there was this abolitionist journalist and Presbyterian minister, because like I said, a lot of that going around, right? Uh, made Elijah Lovejoy, who was the editor of the St. Louis Observer. Um, and you'll notice as we go along, if you want to talk about church history, that there's becoming more and more of a divide between the northern Presbyterians and Congregationalists and people like that, and the southern Baptists and Methodists. Increasingly, it's becoming a, a, there are still Baptists in the north, there are still Presbyterians in the south, but there's becoming more and more of, more of a cultural divide between the two of them. Anyway, Lovejoy's murdered in Alton, Illinois. Uh, by an anti-abolitionist mob because he keeps printing abolitionist stuff in the newspaper and they're, they're tired of it. They burned down three of his presses, built a fourth press in Alton across the border from, from St. Louis, and and they, they broke in, burned it down, and killed him. None of them ever got convicted because the judge and most of the jury were on the mob that did it. And so they were like, no, no, he deserved to die, it's fine. If you were an ardent, somewhat unhinged abolitionist like John Brown. <laughs> and you, you said, this guy, he's printing all these wonderful articles, he's saying all this great stuff, and nothing happens because he gets murdered and nobody cares because the powers that be 
horrifying with that. What would your reaction be? I mean, seriously, I mean, if you're trying to be a little unhinged for a moment, what would your what would your take? <laughs> Donna, stretch yourself. Uh, but what would you what would you, what would you think about that? Beyond this, well, that stinks. Okay. Yeah, you, you'd say, well, the system is is yeah. broken. It's not just a well. There's a this peculiar institution, and we need to vote it out. But you go, how do you vote it out when the when the system is broken, right? Anyway, Brown argued all the all the stuff that we've been doing, all the editorials and people giving sermons, all this kind of stuff. The Underground Railroad swell, but that's dealing with the symptoms. You're not going to fix the problem until you start killing people. You need to destroy the system. That's the only way that you're going to change this. Remember the Underground Railroad, which is neither underground nor a railroad, right? Okay. But this this series of safe houses and people who are willing to help fugitive slaves get out of the South and go hopefully up to Canada. They're also trying to make like Kansas possibly the end of the, 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 the railroad as well. But anything to get you out of the South and into a safe place. Kind of an important thing. Brown says, ah, no, no, we can make it better. Instead of having an underground railroad, I have something completely different. The subterranean passway. Like, sounds a lot like underground railroad. But anyway, what we need is actual, honest-to-goodness fortresses along the way. We need, we need not just safe houses where people can sleep in a barn, but we need fortified encampments that have armed abolitionists and freed slaves there so that you can go to this fortress and they'll fight off anybody that comes and tries to stop you. And then you go to the next one and they'll fight off anybody that tries to stop you. That's what we need. We need our own abolitionist militia out there. That's what we need. And you go, well, I, I see his point, right? That it's, it, it's, people are forever being found in people's farmhouses or in their barns and then dragged back off. There's this, they even passed the Fugitive Slave Act to make it harder to harbor fugitive slaves, easier to catch them. He's like, no. Anyway, 1850. As I said, Fugitive Slave Act gets, gets passed, requiring all states and state officials to aid in the apprehension of all fugitive slaves. And you'd get like a fine of like $300, which back then was huge if you were found not to help. If you were, if you work for the state of Illinois, so Randy, this would actually include you, anybody working for the state of Illinois, if you, if you know of a fugitive slave and you do nothing to turn them in, massive fines. Uh, if you're a, a a marshal, a federal marshal, if you're a, a state cop uh, of, of some kind, if you're a county sheriff, and you don't help in the apprehension of the slaves, you lose your job and get fined 300 bucks. Huge, big deal. South said, this is how we're going to crush things like the Underground Railroad. We don't have any authority up in the north, so there's not much we can do about things. We can only chase them so far. But if we do this, then hopefully even the powers that be in Illinois or Michigan, or Pennsylvania, or, or whatever, will be on our side, right? Because that's, they don't want to get fined, they don't want to get thrown in prison, they don't want to lose their jobs. So, but you, you just brought the power into it. What do you think the, the, the North's reaction to the Future of Slave Act is? Well, they didn't enforce it. Well, enforcing it was hard because you kind of almost had to but you got to find other ways around it. So there's a lot of don't ask, don't tell going on. You know, other things. It's like, I can't just ignore this. Uh, my entire deputy staff will get thrown out and we'll all lose our jobs. And people that like 
the Fugitive Slave Act. We'll get our jobs. I'm not sure that that's good. So there's just a whole lot of, yeah, I just never, I don't talk to Joe Murphy about what he did this weekend, because I'm pretty sure I know what Joe Murphy did this weekend. <laughs> so I see Joe and I go, yep, stand on the other side of the street, Joe, and I walk up. I don't. I just don't want to know. Um, but what it did do is it made even borderline people in, in the North abolitionists. They're like, this is wrong. This is torquing off everybody up north. So all the abolitionists go, dig in, dig in, be more intense. And all the, all the neutral people say, wait, this is, you're, you're wanting us to help you chase down people who all they want is freedom? That's wrong. And also, I started printing all sorts of playbills like this, uh, saying, caution, colored people of Boston, one and all, you're hereby respectfully cautioned and advised to avoid conversing with watchmen and police officers of Boston. Please avoid any public officials because now they have to turn you in. Please avoid. Uh, they, they would put up things when, when the various slave catchers um, who were sent out from the south would come to town and kind of waves. They, they travel through in circuits and stuff. When everyone was coming to town, they are like, okay, within the next couple of days, one of the slave catchers will be coming. So everybody hide. And then they distribute this all over the town. So, I mean, you'd get there to, to find your slaves and, you know, it's like chitty chitty bang bang. All the children, we just don't have any children. They're all gone. It's like, really? No children at all. Nope. Um, and it also meant that we created this atmosphere where African Americans are leery of the police. It's like, well, the last people you'd ever talk to, if you're an African American, is a police officer. Because their whole job is to turn you in. So the bad police officers are going to turn you in. The good police officers, you're putting them in an extremely awkward position. So either way, if you're an African-American, even a freed one, because it gets really complicated because now you have to prove that you're free, etc. If you're an African-American, just avoid any kind of public officials. You cannot trust them. Even the good ones. You just don't talk to them. Luckily, we're past all that feelings, right? Yeah. This is the sort of thing that helped create that. In response, John Brown created what he called the League of Gileadites, which just trips off the tongue. <laughs> Named after Mount Gilead. In Judges 6 and 7, Gideon took the people of Israel to Mount Gilead to protect them. And so he's like, that's what we are. We're, we're there to protect the other people. Uh, he said, all African Americans are supposed to come together. We're supposed to defend one another against fugitive hunters. Uh, one of his quotes, he said, should one of your number be arrested, you must collect together as quickly as possible so as to outnumber your adversaries. So we're going to train, we're going to arm you, and if anything happens to any one of you, you all jump in. Uh, he's like, he specifically said, you need to strike first, you need to strike hard. Do not engage the, the fugitive hunters. Do not say, hey, turn them over, hey, stop what you're doing, kill them. Do not, do not, don't even try to talk to them. You have to strike first. You, you have to be more, you have to be more quick about it, and you have to be more ruthless than they are, so that you can get your brothers and sisters back. One, he gave a whole long list of things that they can do. One of the things that I thought was interesting is he's like, Grab your, grab your friend, grab your brother, sister, whoever it is that got taken, shoot the, whoever's holding him, and then run to some prominent white family's house in town. Even if you don't know them, even if you've never met them, it gives the illusion that they're on our side. And so none of these slave, uh, uh, fugitive slave catchers are going to beat down the door of some prominent white family and say, you're harboring slaves. And if they do... You put that white family in an awkward position where they might go, well, I'm not really an abolitionist, but uh, no, you don't get to come into my house and demand things from me. So 
anything that you can do to get anybody on your side. Again, looking at it from context, you can see why. And this is kind of like some of the things that we tell children today. If, if you are in, you're in a mall and you're lost, you know, what do you do? It's like, well, you go to the, you go to one of the counters uh, in, in, in one of the stores. You talk to, um, talk to a clerk and say, I've lost my mom. I'm not leaving this spot with anybody other than my, a family member. You find a security guard. You, you stay there. You, uh, if anybody starts grabbing you, you yell, stranger danger. You know, you do anything that you can do. You kick and scream. You don't go with them. Anything that you can possibly do to stay. And that's kind of what he's saying here with this League of Gileadites. Increasingly, he's going around speaking all over the place with people. Increasingly, he's getting more and more militant. He's moved from, uh, I want to help the Underground Railroad, to I want to I want to have fortifications along the Underground Railroad, to, you know, maybe we should just kill all those slave catchers that we see, to more and more and more and more militant. And he's going around speaking. He's extremely eloquent. Again, remember, he's going to be this preacher. And so he has this preaching cadence, this very... Uh, everybody that hears him says, this guy's amazing, he's intense, he's charismatic, he's passionate, um, he's tall, he's like six, he's like Abraham Lincoln, tall, and, and, uh, and, and, and slightly beefier than Abraham Lincoln. So he's just this big, intense-looking fellow. Both Harry Tubman and Frederick Douglass were extremely impressed by him. And, you know, this is Frederick Douglass, who is like the most distinguished human being ever. Um... They, they loved him. They said, oh, he's, he's so charismatic. He's so committed. This is awesome. But he's keep getting more and more violent as, as time goes on. Um, back in Kansas, his, his forces had dragged pro-slavery settlers out of their home and hacked them to death with their broadswords or with their, uh, their sabers. So you go, this is uh, it's kind of intense. Because you don't even have to be fighting for the South in Kansas if you are pro-slave take you and your children and your wife out and, and, and chop you into bits and leave you out front so everybody can see that you've been chopped to bits. Again, it's called bleeding Kansas, not bruised Kansas. You know, it's not a, not a nice time in Kansas back then. Um, in Kansas, they fought against the Missouri militia that was being led by people like Quantrill and things, uh, and regularly won because he's actually really good at tactics. Things very, very tough, even though they're outnumbered. Uh, and then he decided, what we need is an armed insurrection in the South. That's what we need. If we just arm the slaves, they will rise up, kill their masters, we will topple the power regime in the South. So that's what we need. We need guns and ammunition. Because this is going to work, right? Theoretically. Theoretically, on paper, it should work. Um, why wouldn't it work? Why might it not work? Give me some reasons why that might not work. Because not, not enough guns and weapons. Okay, maybe there's not enough guns and weapons, or maybe you at least can't get your hands on enough guns and weapons. Slave owners, they're going to start getting more prepared and fight back. Yeah, once you start that, you don't, you know, strangely enough, there might be other people that, that push back against that. Why else? Slaves aren't trained. Yeah. I was just yeah. to say, if you just arm somebody and they don't either know how to use the weapon or have the mental fortitude to follow through. Yeah, um, as, and, and, and not to put too fine a point on it, but not only are they not prepared, not trained, um, some of these people have spent a lifetime being um, traumatized and trained into being docile. 
The idea that you say you've spent your entire life being beaten if you even look cross-eyed at me, here's a gun. Well, those people might explode and go, well, I want a gun, and yes, I want to kill you. But they also might sit there and go, I, uh, I don't know how to be aggressive. I don't have a clue with this. Plus, as we'll talk about I mean, probably next week in the, in the Civil War, um, the South did arm whole units of African Americans. There were armed blacks in the South who fought for the Confederacy. Why would slaves fight for the Confederacy? And they weren't even promised their freedom. They'd go back to being slaves if they won. Why would they fight for the Confederacy? We've already talked about this on a couple different levels. Because they were treated well? Some were. I mean, yeah, some were like, it's really not that bad. Or at least even I don't even know what would be different. Well, else? Well, the fear or the, um, like you were talking about, just the mental capacity to be able to do something if you have been treated one way, it's hard to break free from that. It really is. Why do some abused spouses stay with their abused, abusing husbands or wives? You know, it's what you know, and it's scared to do anything different. Well, one you, at some point, if you're, if you're a slave and you're told to go fight in the Civil War, or like, I mean, maybe the slave owner is going to kill you. Would you rather stay possible. at home and get shot or take your chances on the death? That's possible, too. There's one big one that is, is, the, is the biggest uh, contributing factor for them fighting for the South. Sort of, in, in that, that they're from the South. It's their region. I mean, if, if you were upset with the government, let's pretend you actually don't like one of the candidates running for, uh, for president this year. And that candidate that you don't like becomes president. And um, you don't like some of the policies that the candidate starts enacting. You're frustrated with them. You go, this is not the government I wanted. It's become something ugly and I don't like it. And then Canada, being belligerent, invades. Um, flannel everywhere. Um, and so the Canadians invade America and they're mean and they're kicking over your, your hot dog stands. They're just mean. Um, do you say, well, I should fight for Canada because I don't like my president? Or would you say, I'm American. Canadians can't attack America with impunity. Right? That's kind of what the sleeves are doing. They're going, well, I'm from the South. I'm from Georgia. I'm from Alabama. I don't want some Pennsylvanian coming in and telling me what to do. You go, but you're a slave, but I'm a southern slave. At this time in history, at this time, we're sitting in history, that's still a big deal. What, what state are you from? What region are you from? You still oftentimes think that's important. But 150 years ago, that was huge. That's how you defined yourself, is by what region of the country you're from. So, with a group of, of backers from up north called the Secret Six, uh, he, he got enough guns and ammunition, uh, that he's going to equip a small force, and then he's going to go raid the U.S. Armory, uh, the U.S. Army, Armory, at Harpers Ferry in Virginia, and I'm going to get more stuff. I'm going to get enough weapons that we can arm all the slaves in the South, or at least start the, the, the insurrection. Did he have a plan to distribute it? Um, that's debatable. He had a plan. Would it be effective? That's the question. But his whole plan was, I'm going to hit it like county by county, section by section, we're going to arm all these in, in northern Virginia, and then we're going to take all the all the plantations in Virginia, and then those guys are going to help take everything in Georgia, and then those guys are going to go to North Carolina. So it would happen in waves. It's totally going to work. Um, so he asked Harry Tubman and, and, and Frederick Douglass. He's like, you guys are going to help me with this, right? Because we all want to free the slaves. And what was their reaction? 
Tubman said, yes, that's an awesome idea. Let's raid the U.S. Armory, take their stuff, arm the slaves, and kill everybody. She's going to be on the, on, 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 a, on a $10 bill. Anyway, yes, let's do that. I'll start enlisting blacks to help us. I'll go through the South and tell them there's going to be an armed insurrection. You ought to join it. I'm not leading it. Though, though John Brown called her General Tubman. It's like she's going to be, she's my general. She's, she's really going to help out with this. Yeah, Harry Tubman. Douglas is like, why did you, no, it's not going to work. It's not going to work, guys. It, do you realize logistically the problems with this? All you're going to do, all you're going to do, especially since you can't arm all the slaves all at once, maybe, maybe you might get Northern Virginia. But by the time you work your way down to Alabama, do you think they're not going to be ready for that? I mean, every state's got their own militias, guys. You're going to lose. But beyond that, he's like, it's, it's immoral to, to, to suggest that we should be slaughtering everybody. Do you realize how many people are going to die in this? How many innocent people? How many of the people you're wanting to free are going to die? No. That he started working to undermine Tubman's efforts. He went throughout the South going, don't join this. Do not do this. This is doomed to fail. Everybody's going to die. Don't do this. I like Douglas. Frederick Douglass learned to read in part by taking, he found sheets from, from torn out of a Bible, found them in the gutters in, in Baltimore, and he took them home, and he washed them carefully and dried them carefully and helped teach himself. Well, and he had somebody else that helped him teach him to read, reading the Bible over and over, what little bits he could have. Not only is that just way cool, I really like Frederick Douglass, but it's also something you go, how many, how many of us have a Bible that we leave just sitting on a table and we never crack open? And this guy's like, I searched the gutter for pieces of a Bible and read what little sheets I could have. I got maybe 20 sheets of paper from the Bible, and I, I cleaned them, and I read them every day, all the time. Every bit of the Bible I could get, I, I poured over. I'm like, oh, I like you. You, know, you. you intelligent bibliophile, but also you Bible lover. You know. And I, I, wish, I wish more people would understand this about Frederick Douglass and go, Maybe I should crack my Bible open every once in a while and read it if he, if he thinks it's this important. Anyway, Douglas, I should say, has not always been against the concept of armed violence, though. Um, he was speaking at a hall in Boston once with Sojourner Truth. Anybody ever hear I like her. She's nice. She's really interesting, though. She's a pretty militant feminist. Had some interesting theology, like she argued one time, um, Holy Spirit came on Mary, and, and that's how Jesus was born. Ain't no man involved. You know, it's, it's like, well, granted, you know, so, anyway, but he got so emotional at one point in his speech, I mean, because he's really passionate, really gifted order, beautiful, deep baritone voice, everybody in the hall was really involved, and he's he getting into it, he got so excited at the end that he departed from his notes. Always dangerous to do that. Departed from his notes, and at the end he's like, well, blacks have no hope for freedom unless we take up arms and fight. There has to be blood. We will kill for freedom. And the hall goes quiet. It's like, he's like, everyone! What'd you just say? And Douglas went quiet. It's kind of like, what'd I just say? Did I actually say that out loud? And then Sojourner Chief pipes up and goes, Frederick? Is God dead? Just quite a little retort. He's like, 
We've got no hope for freedom. Nothing. There's nothing we can do unless we rise up and we take arms and we kill for it. There's no other way for us to have freedom. Dead silence, cricket noises. Is God dead? We have no hope. That's what you're arguing? Really like Sojourn Truth. <laughs> really like her perspective on things. Oh, she makes it on the $10 bill. <laughs> 1859. John Brown takes his makeshift troops in there, goes to Harper's Ferry, takes the armory pretty quickly because not that many people work in it. And then he, he's, like I said, he's a good tactician, figured out when to go, took it over really pretty quickly. Interestingly, first person they killed was a railroad baggage master, a guy named Hayward Shepard, who tried to warn the passengers because he saw these armed men going into the armory. He's like, well, this isn't right, this isn't right. Which is ironic because he's a free black man. The first person killed in John Brown's insurrection to free black man was a free black man. Uh, ironically, this is from, um, this, this section here is, is from a monument posted at Harper's Ferry. Talking about the night of October 16th, Hayward Shepard, an industrious and respected colored free man, was mortally wounded by John Brown's raiders in pursuance of his duties as an employee of all Yeah, this was erected by, I think it was like the Daughters of the, Confeder uh, of the Confederacy saying, this is how stupid these northern abolitionists are. This is not somebody saying, you know, I'm an abolitionist, now how dumb was this? This is somebody who is an anti-abolitionist saying, how dumb is this? So from a political standpoint, from a public relations standpoint, this is a kind of a nightmare, isn't it? It's like all you did was make abolitionists look murderously stupid. That, that when the slavery people post monuments to the people you're killing, and saying, this poor black man that you killed, you're just like, oh, ill-considered. Problem is getting out. You can get into the armory, and you're going to grab a whole lot of guns and ammunition, but how do you get out? All the town comes out to stop them once they hear about all this kind of stuff. A whole town filled with people with guns shooting at you as you try to leave the armory. And then a detachment of U.S. Marines, com commanded by Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart, come and demand that they surrender, saying, you, you, you can't hold on to this. Brown says, no, we will not surrender. And three minutes later, it's over. <laughs> Took the Marines three minutes to, to beat these guys. Killed most of them, or arrested them. There are a couple that got away. And so Brown was tried and convicted, because as I said, you know, strangely enough, most northern abolitionists say, even though I want the slaves to be freed, maybe you shouldn't be killing innocent people. And, and uh, storming a U.S. Army military installation to steal weapons for an armed insurrection. I don't think I'm for that. You know, there's a lot of things that I think would be great in our country. I, I don't think I would support it if Eric decided to go kill a bunch of innocent people, storm a U.S. military base, and steal a nuke. Like, um, hey, I'm all for improving schools too, but I don't think that's the way to do it. So. I think he could. I totally think he could. Shred those plans. There you go. By the way, anybody listening to this online, no, we don't think Eric Deemer is going to attack a U.S. military installation. Um, though he could. Anyway, no, no. So he's convicted of conspiracy to rebellion and treason against the state of, of Virginia and murder, which is interesting because um, we don't know that he specifically killed anybody himself. So he's maybe an accomplice to murder. And he's not from Virginia. So 
he's not guilty of treason against Virginia. You have to kind of be from someplace to be treasonous against it. You can, because otherwise, technically, it's an act of war against it. That's if if you're an Englishman and you come to the United States and and steal plans to give to Russia, that's espionage, not treason. You can't be arrested for treason. You have to be part of it. Anyway, it's just Why isn't it treason against the U.S. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, again, most of the time back here, we're thinking in terms of states. Yes, there's a union, but very few people use the term union until you got to the Civil War era. It was these United States, not the United States, right? And so it was these United States, everybody was thinking, we're kind of a confederation of states. The Confederacy said, let's take that a step further and be a genuine confederacy of states, not just a union. And, th and then the northern states said, well, then we need to pull together more and be one federal union, one big body, one singular presence. So the idea of the United States is a civil war concept. And started in the south. Actually, st no, started in the north. The United States. We are one but singular body. Confederacy, because the north, I mean, because the south is being more well, I see what you're that made us decide. No, but the south was trying to do the opposite. The south was saying, let's just be a loose confederacy. Oh, okay. Okay, I get that. Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. I, I, I'm talking quick. <laughs> and probably poorly. Um, so his execution is this media circus. People came from all over the place to support Brown. Not necessarily his actions, but to support him. as the famous painting of him being let out and kissing a little... Maybe there as he comes out. Um, <coughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Walt Whitman, Victor Hugo, all sorts of different people came out and said, this is horrible, this is travesty. Um, it's like executing Moses for freeing the Hebrews. Um, Victor Hugo argued, it's, it's, there are horrible travesties in history, and this is one of them. This is essentially Washington killing Spartacus. Uh, is that really what you want? when that other guy did, his death wasn't Yeah, justified. that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we killed him and we got away with it, this guy. Oh. So, even though most Northerners didn't necessarily like his actions, it's still, there were a lot of people that became abolitionists after this. this. Abolitionism became really big in the North going, really? Really? We're executing one guy that finally said it's enough and it's enough, let's go free the slaves. Bear in mind, even back then, most people thought in terms of sound bites, just larger sound bites. And so what they heard was, Northern abolitionist was willing to fight to, to free the slaves, and so he's being executed. Not Northern abolitionist decides to charge U.S. military installation and steal a nuke. And it's like, and there's a surge in militias in the South. We start building up our other because apparently there are people out there supporting arming the slaves against us. So every state build up your militia. It's not just well, if we have a problem, let's call let's call together and let's come to you. No, we're going to have. Uniforms are bad. Flags. Build up your militia. We, each state needs to have its own army. Harriet Tubman praised Brown, saying that he'd done more in dying than a hundred men would in living. Arguably so. And his death was kind of like Kennedy dying in the sixties. You go, okay, this is galvanizing everybody. Who knows if there had been a, if there really would have been such a civil rights push if Kennedy hadn't been a martyr to the civil rights movement. That's really what galvanized Johnson to, to go with. The, uh, the Civil Rights Movement. Anyway, 1860. Let's fix this. Crittenden Compromise. We're going to fix this. Abraham Lincoln drew a line in the sand against slavery and gave this famous Peoria speech. Anybody hear about this speech, the speech they gave in Peoria? Right here in Peoria? Anyway, 
He argued against the slave races little by little, but steadily as man's march to the grave, we have been giving up the old for the new faith. Nearly 80 years ago, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. But now, from that beginning, we've run down to the other declaration that for some men to enslave others is a sacred right of self-government. These principles cannot stand together. They are as opposite as God and mammon, and whoever holds the one must despise the other. Yeah. Tie this with scripture, tie this to, we, are all men created equal? The only argument that you can have is to say, well, they, they aren't really human. Is that really where you want to go? And some people did. So, part of his presidential campaign platform, he argues slavery should be made illegal in U.S. territories, all those new places out in the West. As they come in, let's make those illegal. It should only be, only be allowed to exist in the places that already are slave states. Um, and you can't, you can't extend into new things, which means he's thumbing his nose at the Missouri Compromise. Remember when we talked about that, that all new territories, as they come in, northern territories come in as free states, southern territories come in as slave states. And Lincoln goes, no, all territories come in as, as free states. So, a lot of southern states say, okay, we'll... We're going we're gonna to secede if somebody like that becomes president. Because he's just banging this anti-slavery drum and, and ignoring the Missouri Compromise. That's it. We don't, we don't like him. So, Kentucky Senator John Crittenden says, let's, let's come up with a new compromise. If we don't want to do the Missouri Compromise, let's come up with a new one. I got it. I'm going to make everybody happy. You guys are going to love me. Everybody in the North, everybody in the South, you're going to love this. All right? How do we figure out this compromise? It's simple. We're going to make six constitutional amendments that are going to preserve the Missouri Compromise and protect the Missouri Compromise. The sixth of which is going to say it would be illegal for any future amendments to the Constitution to ever change any of this. So, five, five constitutional amendments saying slavery is good, we're going to do the Missouri Compromise. The sixth one says can't change anything or legislate slavery at all. And it's an unalterable thing. On the other side, we're going to have four congregational, or congregational, congressional, I can't talk, congressional resolutions that are going to strengthen the Fugitive Slave Act, make it easier and better for, for fugitive slaves to be returned, but disallow any new slaves to be brought over from Africa. See? Everybody goes home happy. <laughs> Too much the northern, all, all the northern Republicans go, you're nuts! That's just your part! Your compromise is that we will never get to change the Missouri Compromise? That's, uh, no. We're so not doing that. Some slave states along the border even said, I'm sorry, I'm a slave state and I think that's just malarkey. Uh, no, we're, we're siding with the North. You can't do that. So like Missouri and, and Kentucky and Maryland are like, no, no, I don't think so. Kentucky, that's his state, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Lincoln gets elected president, derisively called the rail candidate, because they're like, your platform has one rail, and that's, that's freedom of slaves. And so his predecessor, James Buchanan, had basically annoyed everybody, because he tried to play both sides and make everybody happy. Ever hear the Dred Scott case? This is unpleasant. Back in 1857, where Dred Scott tried to get freedom for himself and his family and had a strong legal case. Um, there were some technicalities, though, and Buchanan put pressure on the Supreme Court to have him declared property. Therefore, he is not a citizen of the United States and doesn't have the rights of a citizen. So can we just declare all slaves to be non-humans? 
And so the President of the United States put pressure on that, not because he was necessarily pro-slavery, he just wanted it all to go away. That basically tore off everybody up north. And so everybody's ready for there to be somebody to come along and fix things. Just make the whole divide go away. Problem is, is that both the North and the South wanted that, but wanted it in two completely different ways, right? They both, both sides wanted somebody who's going to make all the fighting stop. Funky little teaching moment. Politics. Um, Lincoln won because, strangely, his support in the Northern States. You'll notice only Northern States voted for Lincoln. Um, he only won two out of 996 counties in the South. Two out of that. So, like, what, two-tenths of a percent voted for him in the South, and absolutely no ballots for Lincoln in 10 out of the 15 southern states. Not one human being voted for Lincoln in 10 out of 15 states. But he only won a little over one-third of the actual popular vote. He did not get anything even remotely like a plurality of vote. He received like uh, 1.8 million votes out of about 5 million votes that were cast. Stephen Douglas, remember the whole Lincoln-Douglas debates, Douglas, uh, who was a uh, Northern Democrat, got 1.3 million. That's only 500,000 votes difference between these two guys. It, it, was, it was a very close race. Could have gone another way. John Breckinridge, a Southern Democrat, which had become its own party. The Democratic Party had split, just like the Baptists split into Baptists and Southern Baptists. The Democratic Party split into Democrats and Southern Democrats. Uh, he later became the Confederate States Secretary of War. He received 848,000 votes. So what if the Democratic Party hadn't split? John Bell, Southerner who opposed secession, received over 500,000 votes. What if those votes had gone to somebody else? Like Douglas. So it was very... What? The argument you're making today, and that's why, that's why they want Cruz and Trump and everybody to say, I'll support that's why I'm going into this as much detail as I am. It's just you'd find yourself saying the only reason Lincoln won was because his opponents were split. If they had actually come together, there's a good chance he would have lost. Anyway, yep, he also got very, very lucky in the electoral college because even though he he did not get even remotely a plurality of that, he did get most of the electoral college votes. It's just the way it worked out, which is a funky election thing that we can talk about some other time. Anyway. So because of that, Lincoln assured the South that he would not ever end slavery. Because that's never been what he's talking about. He's talking about ending it in the territories, but not taking away from that. He wrote letters to every governor telling them he supported creating a constitutional amendment to protect slavery in all southern states. Now, was this after he was president? Mm -hmm. Okay. One of the first things he did was write a letter to all the governors saying, I'm fine with, we can have a constitutional amendment protecting slavery in slave states. That's, that's the Lincoln you all know from history, right? At his first inaugural address, very first big presidential speech, he specifically said, quote, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Okay. But at the news that he became president, South Carolina immediately seceded. They're like, that's it, we're done. We're now the sovereign state of South Carolina. Adopted a new flag. This is the Confederate flag. One star. We're just us, the Lone Star State. Yes, they what? that's what they call them. Two. Within three months, a lot of other states joined them, 
and became a new nation called the Confederate States of America, right? So we're all going to come together and confederate with former Secretary of War Jefferson Davis as our new president, right? Now, this was never the Confederate flag. This was never any Confederate flag. It's worth talking about this. Like I said, it's a confederacy, right? Not a union. It's not like it. They, they call themselves the confederacy not just to differentiate themselves from the union, but also to say we are a vaguely unified confederation of independent sovereign nation states. So, take a nod from the state flag of Tennessee that looked like this, and we're going to make our own flag, the confederate flag. That's, that's the confederate flag. And then we just keep adding stars as new states come in. This flag is eventually referred to as the Stars and Bars. If you've ever heard the expression Stars and Bars, that's this flag. Stars and Bars. When the wind hit this flag, or it's just hanging and it's drooping, it looks a lot like the Union flag, as you can imagine. They're like, this looks great when you put it out as, you know, as a JPEG on, a, on an overhead like this. But in actual point, they're like, that maybe was ill-considered. <laughs> so every every state, their state militias and their state armies had their own battle flags. For instance, that's the battle flag from the Army of Texas, right? This is the battle flag from the Army of Northern Virginia, affectionately known as the Southern Cross flag. Okay, you notice they're square, right? A lot of battle flags are square. It's a lot easier to run around with a square flag in, in, in battle than with a big old normal sized flag. So that's where that one comes from. Later. The Confederate States incorporated Virginia's battle flag into their new official national flag, which also is their naval ensign. That that becomes the new flag of the Confederate States of America. Is there? Do you see any problems with waving that flag in battle? It looks like you're surrendering. It looks like you're surrendering. And so they kept being charged with surrender. They're like, no, we're no, we're not surrendering. Beauregard, go tell them we're not surrendering. So they added a red bar, so it didn't just look like a uh, like a white flag. This is a dumb-looking flag. This is like a committee flag. This is like, I'm, 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 it's just getting weirder looking. So, so as many problems as the North had generals, the South had a flag? Yes, basically. So this was never any kind of flag. Technically, it looks a lot like the naval jack that got used by some ships at the end of the war, but the colors are all wrong. This is, this is funky. This, this, was never any kind of flag. This is just what people who like to call themselves rebels put in their basements and garages. Well, but when did it become even thought of as a flag? Well, because everybody liked the no, Army of Northern Virginia and they just liked them because this, this looks weird. This doesn't look like a flag. This yeah. looks like some sort of battle pennant. You go, it's because it's a battle pennant. Huh. Now, I, I will say, I've always found it offensive that the actual Confederate battle flag, this one, the square one, it's still proudly incorporated into the modern state flag of Mississippi. It's illegal to fly the swastika in Germany. It's illegal to fly the rising sun flag in Japan. You can fly this flag in the south. That, I'm just going to say it bothers me, and I'm going to move on. If you like it, knock yourself out. Bothers me. Anyway, also means that on many levels, the modern order of the stars and bars that supports uh, how cool the south was is just plain silly, because that's not the stars and bars. That's the Southern Cross flag, so... Oh, anyway, Battle of Fort Sumter, 1861. Um, once they say we're out of here, we're seceding, there's not a lot that you can do from Washington saying, no, you're not. Um, please don't secede. Um, but he did demand that Charleston's Fort Sumter 
remain in Union hands. It's like it's a Union fort. It's an important fort. Uh, it's got all of our stuff there. We keep that fort. I get why he's saying that, but there's little chance that in the middle of all these red Confederate states, they're going to say, yeah, you can keep that fort. No. So one of uh, Davis's first executive orders is that the Southern Militia turned New Army take Fort Sumter and replace it with the Confederate flag, which at the time looked like that, right? So if you ever seen any pictures of Fort Sumter where they put the, the stars and bars, you know, the X flag, you used to go, wrong name for the wrong flag, no. Anyway, under a guy named PGT Beauregard, Southern forces took the fort. Many of the officers still wearing their gray West Point uniforms because they don't want to wear their... Exactly. They don't have the official uniforms yet, but they're not going to wear the blue of the Union because they're fighting against their own Union brothers, people that they fought with, maybe even at Harper's Ferry. So they put on their old West Point uniforms. Uh, in fact, it's worth noting, at this point in history, most of the best officers are in the South. Just the way it works out. So the really good officers are all south of the Mason-Dixon line, and you just go, oh, nuts, that's bad planning. Fact, and they joined the Confederate Army, in fact, that greatly offended one of the most vocal detractors of the Confederacy, who was adamantly against secession and, and, and wrote tons of letters about it. Robert E. Lee. Absolutely despised the concept. After, firing, after the firing on Fort Sumter, he resigned his commission in the United States Army and said, no, I can't, I can't fight against my brothers on either side. I can't do it. He began speaking out against the revolution. He wrote to his son, quote, I can anticipate no greater calamity for the country than the dissolution of the Union. This is horrible. Uh, Jefferson Davis offered him a chance to serve in the Confederate Army. Lee said, absolutely not. Categorically not. Will not do it. He also turned down a similar offer to take a top position in the Union Army, saying, I, I look upon secession as anarchy. It's wrong. If I owned the four millions of slaves in the South, I would sacrifice them all to the Union because I don't want secession. But how can I draw my sword upon Virginia, my native state? Not only do you go, oh, poor guy. Do you see what I'm talking about? About It's like, I'm against slavery, technically, he owns slaves. But he considered it a moral and political evil in any country. That's what he wrote. It's just he thought it was a necessary evil. You know, you got to have slaves. It's the only way to make the South run. But I, I, am, I, it's not, I, I wouldn't fight for slavery against the Union. I, I took an oath of office to be a... a, a a leader in the Union Army. No. He's adamantly against secession. But he's a Virginian. And that's where he sees himself first and foremost. If push comes to shove, first and foremost, beyond being an American, I'm a Virginian. So he talks to his mentor, Winfield Scott. Remember him? We've talked about him a couple times from the Mexican-American War. He's now head of the Union Army. And he says, what do I, what do, I do? Should I just sit on my porch and, and watch it from a distance? I mean, I can't fight against... Virginia, and I can't fight against the Union. So, what would you do? What would I do? Winfield Scott gave the just sagest advice in military history. He says, I have no place in my army for equivocal men like you. Make me sick. Yeah. Oh, Winnie. You are good to call him Winnie. Oh, Winnie, you are an idiot. You know, it's like, you, you didn't say, you know, you, you really should see yourself first as an American. You didn't say, yes, sit on your porch. You said, if you're worried about this, then you're no kind of soldier. I can't stand you. So he did a bunch of soul searching, decided that Winfield's right. You can't, you can't just sit it out. You can't swatch from a distance. But if I have to bear arms against somebody, I can't do it against Virginia. So he took a leadership position in the Confederate Army because of Winfield.
Garfield Scott, who I want to kick in the shit. Battle of Fort Sumter sets off protests in the North and the South. Everybody's calling for war. Lincoln orders to invade the South, saying, okay, we're going to confiscate all Union property. We're going to get our forts. We're going to get our weaponry back. Um, this is going to turn nasty. But unfortunately, invading the South with a bunch of blue-coated army guys to take all your stuff back, yeah, the final few states go, yeah, we'll join the Confederacy. They can't march through Alabama without us being upset about it. Yeah, we're going to join. He's like, no, it set off the wrong kind of firestorm. And both the North and the South declared themselves to be in a state of open war. Wacky fun. Yeah, I can do this because it's a battle flag. How would you summarize all this stuff going on? It is complicated, but do you see the flow of things? Why things happen the way they did? Now, if you're a Christian back then, what would you do? You've just seen this Battle of Fort Sumter. Next next week, we'll go through the whirlwind Civil War timeline. You know, just kind of do the highlights of things so you can see the flow of it. But if you were in the South and you, you were running into this, or if you were in the North and you were running into all this, what would your take be? This is worth stopping for a moment and, and talking about from a... We haven't talked a lot about church history, so let's let's take this to nowadays and, and as a modern church. I, I mean, I kind of think about it as like like I can have non-Christian friends, um, and I can have I can have friends who are, are gay or, or whatever. But like at the root of all of it, when we come to that that point, like either we are unified on Christianity or we're not, and like like it separates you know bone and marrow and the, the sword separate you know like. We're not gonna ever agree on that, and so as many compromises as we make to make our friendship work, every time the topic of conversation comes back to that, we're gonna have this divide, and it's it's either gonna unify us or separate us. And I mean, it's the same with the Civil War. As many compromises as you want to make, there's no way one is giving up the other. Uh, like one is gonna okay. give up slavery, and there's no compromise you can make to make that work if you think slavery is wrong. Right. Or if you think slavery is right. Yeah. Well, and, and I've discussed this even on a denominational level of if if we work so hard to give the illusion of um, unanimity, that that doesn't make everybody unified. It's like it's like if you were say my my Buddhist friends, you know, we're we're great, we all agree you shouldn't probably shoot people in the head, you know, we're we're all that's great. We just don't ever talk about religious things. Okay? It, if you agree that you're never going to talk about the stuff that you actually have a difference of opinion or a difference of faith on, so you get a long break. You go, are you unified, or do you just have the illusion of unification? You have, we're unified on everything except the most important bits, and we just refuse to talk about those. So we're all buddies, and everything's great. It's going to come to a problem sometime. There will be a point where, where, where push comes to shove, and you're going to have to admit, technically, we're not unified. Um, Okay, so what else? Yeah, Christine. I guess um, the takeaway from this is be careful with what you are most loyal to. Because if you're most loyal to, um, I mean, we've seen this not today, but if you're most loyal to the church and not the truth, what are you going to, when it comes down to it, what are you going to really truly be fighting for? What are you going to be really willing to sacrifice for? You see here people willing to sacrifice things for their loyalty. Um, and so I think we all will do that. We will make ultimate sacrifice for all of those things. Is there a biblical argument about that? About 
choosing masters? What is, what's the biblical argument? Anybody can remember? Is there any place in scripture? Yeah, you will you will serve a master in your life. You will absolutely enslave yourself to some master. Who or what is that going to be? Is it going to be cocaine? Is it going to be God? Is it going to be your retirement plan and money? Is it going to be your pleasure? Is it going to be your children? What are you making the center point of your life that you will give everything for? Where every in your life there is one thing. And you may never have even articulate it to yourself. In your life, there is one thing that you would be willing, if, if it really came down to it, everything else could fall if it meant holding on to that. What exactly is that? And I'm not saying that you would be fine with losing your children, or fine with losing your home, or fine with, But if you said you have to choose between your Christianity and your children, which one? To save your children, would you renounce Christ? Or to hold on to your faith in Christ, would you say, kill my children? There will come a point somewhere in your life, probably not that dramatic, but there will come a point in your life where you have to make choices. You will compromise some things to defend other things in your life. What are you calling your master when it comes right down to it? Again, I'm not faulting people. I'm just saying it's physics. There, 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 there cannot be multiple things that you're willing to compromise everything else for. You. No, because it'll come down to what, what about if you take two of those multiple things and you have to compromise one of those? Which one? And it might shift. As, it will shift as time goes on. Okay? What else? Anything else Christianly, churchishly? Kind of like what I think he was saying. There's some things you just can't compromise on. You know, like like it today with abortion, you can't compromise because it's either they're dead or they're not dead. It's how do you compromise? And here, slavery. How do you compromise if you really think slavery is wrong and these people don't should not be treated that way or they're worth something? You can't compromise. You can't say, okay, well, you think they're just property, so it's okay for you, but not for me. It just that isn't. Work. Not to explode the issue and say this is a class about abortion, but just you, that's a perfect example because you have this wonderful Crittenden compromise in abortion nowadays, don't you? This idea of, okay, some people say that abortion is okay. It's You have the right to take the life of your unborn child. It's not like it's a human being anyway. Um, so you can do that. Other people say, no, it's murder because that's a human being. So do we make it legal for people to kill their unborn child? Do we make it illegal? Tell you what. Let's meet in the middle and say, everybody gets to decide for themselves if they want to kill their unborn child. You go, that's not a compromise. That's the abortionist position. That's, that's, the, that's that position. That's, there's no law in the book saying you must kill your unborn child. So if we put on law that you can if you feel like it, that is the abortionist position. Now, again, I'm not trying to argue pro or, or against abortion in that, just to say that's a classic example of the Crittenden Compromise in a modern sense. And there are always going to be these things where, in anything, people will go, all right, let's just meet in the middle and do my thing. Well, and that's, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the argument they're making about slaves at that time. Mm -hmm. Are they human? Are they not? Are they property? Are they, could someone person? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and in large, and in large part, the question of abortion really hinges ultimately on, is the fetus or is it not a human being? Which is the same thing that they're arguing in the Dred Scott case. 
Is is an African American or is he not a human being? All right. Anything else from a let's do one more. Anything else from a from a, a modern church standpoint in terms of how you how we view this or where you would find yourself on this? Is it okay to use violence? I mean, I'm going to Bonhoeffer and they ask assassination attempt at Hitler. You know, it's like when you see stuff that's so horribly evil that you're really against, is it reasonable to use? Violence. And yes, so General Truth made a great point, is God dead? But also, is God calling you know, is mm-hmm. God calling us to violence or not? Does he never call to violence? I mean, I think I think that's a really difficult issue. Both John Brown and Nat Turner both said, I've received visions from God that I should do this. Nat Turner considered himself a prophet, right? It's like I get visions from God all the time and he tells us that we should go slaughter everybody. And that's that Weren't there biblical prophets that God said, go slaughter people? Aren't there biblical leaders? So, even classic Anabaptists, and the, what we oftentimes think of as the classic pacifist group, you know, the Mennonites and stuff, classic Anabaptist theology said, oh no, violence is okay if God himself is leading the fight. Just like in the Old Testament, God went ahead of the Israelites and fought for them. If God himself leads us, okay. But if anybody says, Philosophically, we think. Politically, think. Socially, we think this is a good idea. We can't join them. That's the classic, technically, the classic Mennonite theology behind that. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, is this one of these situations where God is actually leading us into this? Um, I saw a really good debate in, in uh, seminary one time uh, about Bonhoeffer um, and about his involvement. One person arguing, this is not a violent man, and yet he was standing against tyranny. This was important. And the other person, I will say, made, they, they went back and forth and back and forth, really good arguments, and the, 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 the and I, I had great respect for both sides, but the other one did make a really interesting argument, but I'm like, that one's hard to beat, because the guy's like, but it was important to take a stand against villainy and stop it, and he said, did it? Did it work? So, Bonhoeffer even wrote, this is evil, but you have to do evil sometimes. And, 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 and the guy's like, no. You never do evil. And you go, but if God himself was calling you, if God himself was calling us to do that, it would have worked. It was an interesting argument. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not, don't hear me saying, oh, so pacifism. I'm just saying, it was an interesting argument to go, can you claim automatically that God must have been calling him to do this if it didn't work? Now, there are times that God calls us to do things and it doesn't work the way you intended, and there are other things that God was wanting to do with that. But the basic idea of we have to stop the tyranny, you go, did it stop the tyranny? Well, no. Then it at least didn't do what you intended it to do. Um, so it is it is an interesting argument. And again, I'm not arguing for or against. I'm just saying, from a church standpoint, is there a time for violence for, as Christians today? If there is, when is that? And who gets to decide that? And under what conditions? Because even Douglas was like, no, I can see the place for that. This is not the place for that. It's not going to work. All it will do is make everything worse. So it's, it's an interesting question. But these are things that we face as Christians, where we need to stop and say, what are we compromising on? Is that going to work? There are some things that, yes, we can find middle ground on. I don't have to have all my way. You don't have to have all your way. Let's find middle ground where we, we can both live with each other. Ideally, ideally, better than compromise, what's a better way of doing that? Let's end with this. What's a better way, instead of saying, I get half of what I want and... I'm half frustrated. You get half of what you want, and are half frustrated. But instead of one of us getting everything we want, and both of us being frustrated, ideally, what's a better way of doing it? Yeah, 
if, if, if you can come to the point where by conversation you can actually come to commonality, that's ideal. But even if you can't come to commonality, can't, maybe I'll do this the other way. So long as you're thinking, I have to give up half, but at least you don't get everything that you, the moment you start thinking that kind of circumscribing, this part is mine, that part is yours, I win, win over here, but then lose, lose over there, and then you lose, but then win. The moment I start thinking about what I win and you lose, what you win versus what I lose, my stuff versus your stuff, even if you do find a compromise, you, you are going to be frustrated. This is going to, to build resentment, and it will get ugly further down the line. I'm not saying compromise is always bad. I'm just saying, by definition, it is adversarial, which is ironic, because everybody always thinks compromise, that's us coming together. You go, no, compromise is by definition adversarial. It's just adversarial when nobody ends up fighting. But you definitely circumscribe which parts the adversaries won on. There are times where you have to do that for one reason or another, especially sociopolitically. But if we do what you were talking earlier about our master, if we're really following Christ and we're like, this is what I want to do, this is the, the Bible, this is the thing I want to do, then it changes your whole perspective. It's not what do I lose and what do they yeah. get. That's, that's it. Well, but this is, we need to add. So this is, talk about this in a sec. That's an excellent thing. Let's end with this. Because the most argumentative Christian in the Bible is arguably Paul. He's like the king of argument. He wrote Romans, which is one gigantic argument. That's all it is. And yet it was Paul that said, oh, I don't agree with everything with Paul. But I say, praise God, he's, he's bringing people to the Lord. I wouldn't do it that way, but knock himself out. I'm not agreeing with everybody, and I'm not compromising necessarily with them, but I'm saying we both serve the same God. We do it differently, but... Okay. It, it, it is, it's, it's not fluffery. It, it, don't ever accuse Paul of just going, well, whatever. <laughs> you know, but this idea of saying, I don't have to agree with you on every jot and tittle for us to be brothers in Christ and for me to say, God bless your ministry. Let's close. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the grace to disagree, but the grace to disagree in a very agreeable fashion. I thank you that you give us hard, fast truths that we should never back down on. But I pray, Lord, help us to show love and grace toward our brothers and sisters. And I pray, Lord, help us to be willing to go to the mat to love other people well, to remind ourselves that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against all the sin and all the demonic influence that created that, that adversarialness in the first place. Help us, Lord, to come together to do that. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.